Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another special episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, and this week I am flying solo. We are going to be continuing the presentation of common misconceptions of the various CFP topics. So if you missed it last week, uh, Adam kicked the series off with his review of tax, uh, where he went over some common misconceptions that a lot of students run into with various topics uh, in that course. And today we are going to be continuing it, and I'm going to be diving into the biggest misconceptions with the investment planning coursework. Uh, So without further ado, let's dive into it. Now, the number one most common misconception that I run into with students and the investment planning coursework is that, frankly, they just don't take it seriously enough. Uh, I could retire if I had a nickel for every time I had a student tell me, oh, I've been a financial advisor for 30 years, or oh, you know, investments is my specialty, this is going to be my easy course, Uh, I got this in the bag, it's going to be so, uh, it's so in my wheelhouse, I'm I'm good, you know, don't worry about it, everything's going to be fine. And then they actually get into the coursework material, and it is a rude awakening for them. Um, You cannot just coast by on your industry experience and expect to do well in the investment planning coursework, at least off of experience alone. It is a very difficult course subject. There's a lot of very complex ideas and formulas and all sorts of concepts that you're going to come across that you've probably never run into before, no matter how many years of experience that you have. And so when you come across those uh, difficult concepts, it's important to remember that you are a student and you are learning all of these things. It's no different than estate planning or insurance or any of the other topics that you might not have much experience with, there is going to be lots of topics in investments that falls into that same category of brand new knowledge. And that's a good thing. You know, in fact, a lot of times having a lot of industry experience can actually be a bit detrimental with investment planning because people tend to get stuck in their ways. And so they end up, uh, you know, being very stubborn in how they try and learn this material. You know, a very common uh, refrain that I've heard from students that, you know, really makes me shake my head is, you know, they'll say something along the lines of, oh, well, my firm doesn't, uh, you know, deal with precious metals. So that can't be the answer. We, you know, we would just never recommend precious metals. Um, so I, I, I didn't choose that as an answer. Or, you know, my firm uh, doesn't do any sort of uh, tax advice. So I can't tell them if it's going to be, you know, long term or short term capital gains because we're not allowed to, to do any tax advice. Well, guess what? The CFP board is not your firm. The CFP board does not care what your firm policies are. The CFP board expects you to be a knowledgeable individual in all of these fields and to be able to at least give basic advice and recommendations in these topic areas 
even if it is not something that your firm normally deals with. So I can promise you that you will never be getting a correct answer by saying, oh, well, my firm doesn't do X, Y, and Z, so we don't touch it. That is not a valid answer. You need to be uh, open-minded with all of these different concepts, and you have to be willing to work with clients uh, that, uh, you know, maybe come to you with these, these difficult concepts and, and, you know, areas that you might not be, uh, used to. Now, if your firm has a policy in the real world that tells you you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z, well, yeah, that's your firm's policy and you got to do what your firm says if you want to keep your job. But in the CFP board world, in the test world, when you are sitting for that exam, I don't care what your firm policies are. The only thing that matters is the CFP board's policies. So don't be stubborn. Don't get stuck in your ways. Don't let your industry experience be a double-edged sword and cause you to get questions wrong because of your inflexibility. So first and foremost, just wanted to cover that because without a doubt, that is the most common misconception I run into you know, people don't take it seriously enough or they confuse their firm policies with CFP board policies. Now, the flip side of that is once students get their, uh, you know, hands on the investment materials and they see the formulas and the complex calculations, they tend to have the pendulum swing all the way to the other side and they start to panic. They go from nonchalance where they think this is going to be no sweat to, oh my God, how am I ever going to do this? How am I ever going to solve these calculations? How am I ever going to memorize these formulas? And they freak out and a lot of them actually just give up. You know, I've had plenty of students over the years tell me, yeah, my plan is to just, you know, cross my fingers and hope that I don't get asked a question on that topic because there's no way I'm going to be able to solve that formula. Well, I'm here to tell you that, you know, swinging that pendulum all the way over is just as bad as not taking it seriously enough because I promise you that these formulas and these concepts are not as difficult as they first seem. Once you kind of sink your teeth into it, once you uh, you know break them apart and look at them uh, in you know bite-sized pieces, they start to get a whole lot easier to understand, and even more so, they start to get really interesting. And once you're very interested in a subject, it makes it a whole lot easier to learn that subject. Now, for example, I think probably one of the worst defenders of this is the holding period return formula. Now, this is a formula that's on the CFP uh, formula sheet. If you want, you can pull up the CFP uh, formula sheet, and it's in the bottom left-hand corner uh, of that uh, sheet of paper. At least it was last I checked. They might have updated it since uh, this episode coming out. But I'll read it off for you just so you can get an idea of how complicated they make this formula seem. Uh, holding period return. So HPR equals bracket parentheses one plus R one close parentheses times parentheses one plus R squared close parentheses times parentheses one plus RN parentheses uh, close bracket minus one. 
man, that is a scary looking formula. It looks like there's a whole lot going on there. A lot of students, if they came across that on the test, are just going to say, man, that's going to take me way too much time. I'm going to skip that. When in reality, holding period return is one of the easiest calculations that you'll do on the test. You know, forget about what's printed on that formula sheet. I don't think I've ever actually even used the official formula for holding period return because its concept is so easy that a lot of people actually solve for holding period return without even realizing that they're solving for it. If you break holding period return down to just its basic building blocks, you know what the formula is for that? Profit divided by cost. That's it. Take your profit, you know, find out how much you bought it for, find out how much you sold it for. The difference there is your profit. Take that and then just divide it by your cost. Bam, you just solved for holding period return. There is absolutely no need to do this long convoluted formula that they display on the formula sheet. You just don't need it. It's way simpler than that. So that is just an example of a something that at first glance seems really, really difficult, but isn't that difficult when you take the time and step back and think about how these things work in real life. Now, uh, a bit of a tangent from that is another uh, misconception, and this is also two very popular formulas. You know, you can almost guarantee that you will see these formulas on your CFP exam, and they are the trainer and the sharp ratios. Now, a really big uh, misconception with these is students don't really realize how closely related these formulas actually are. They think they're two completely separate thing and they, they you know, like once again, they look at the formula and they think it's gonna be too difficult and so they skip it and they don't even bother trying to figure out what's going on there. Uh, when in actuality, they're both very interesting formulas and they're also almost identical. There's just one small difference between them. So let's actually look at, uh, at the formulas to see uh, how they function, and then we can take a look at what makes them slightly different. So both the trainer ratio and the sharp ratio start out the same way. They start out with RP minus RF. And what that stands for is portfolio return minus risk-free rate. That's the RP minus the RF. And let's just think about, you know, what are you actually doing right there? Well, you are taking your portfolio return and you are subtracting the risk-free rate and that gives you your portfolio premium. So let's put some real numbers to that just to, you know, solidify that concept. Let's say you earned 10% on your portfolio and treasury bonds were paying 2%. Well, 10% return on your portfolio minus the 2% of the risk-free rate, which in this case is represented by treasury bonds, that gives us 8% premium. So right there with both the trainer ratio and the sharp ratio, the very first step is just figuring out how much extra you made above the risk-free rate. You know, 
what was your bang for your buck for the risks that you took and in the investments that you you made how much extra did you make rather than someone who just plays it nice and safe and boring and sticks with the treasuries so we we get our our portfolio premium is the very first step of both formulas now, the next step, which is also the last step, they're very simple formulas, it's just a two-step process, is you then divide that premium by your measure of risk. And this is where the two formulas diverge and turn into different formulas, because the two formulas have different ideas about what is the appropriate measure of risk. Now the trainer ratio uses beta and the sharp ratio uses standard deviation. And the way I always tell people to remind uh, to remember that is sharp starts with an S, standard deviation starts with an S. So trainer is beta, sharp is standard deviation. So with the trainer uh, ratio, we take our portfolio premium and we divide it by beta and that's how we get trainer. And with sharp, we take our portfolio premium, we divide it by standard deviation and that's how we get our sharp ratio. Other than the value of what you're using to determine your measure of risk, those two formulas are exactly the same. So you kind of get this two for one effect of if you, if you learn one formula, you by default learn the second one. And both of those formulas are very, very important and are very heavily tested on on the CFP exam. So if you're looking for studying efficiency, it doesn't get much better than that as a, you know, a two for one, buy one, get one free. Now. Uh, these get into much more detail. They're very interesting formulas. I really like these because if you're a finance nerd like me, you can learn all sorts of cool things about the market and you know everything going on using these. So we don't really have time to get into that today. Uh, but one thing I just want to kind of draw attention to is, well, why do they have different measures of risk? Well, the reason why is because they have different concepts and ideas of what they're trying to measure. So if you know a little bit uh, about standard deviation, you know that that is more based on the historical returns uh, of the investment. You know, the standard deviation is the standard deviation of historical returns to kind of give you an idea of what the scale is. You know, a company that has, you know, uh, negative 50% returns one year and 75% returns the next year is going to have a much wider standard deviation than another company that has, you know, maybe 5% returns one year and then 10% returns the next year. So it kind of gives you an idea of, you know, the scattershot vo uh, volatility of that particular stock. So if you're looking for kind of a more historical volatility uh, uh, idea, you would be more drawn to using the sharp ratio because the standard deviation is looking at just that historical value for of, of returns for that particular stock. Whereas uh, compare that to trainer, which uses beta. If you know anything about beta, beta is a measure of how volatile a stock is in relation to the overall market. You know, how much of 
the stock's volatility is related to market volatility. You know, how closely does the stock's movement mirror the overall market movement? So if you're more concerned about a stock's performance in regards to the market as a whole, well, in that case, you would be more interested in the trainer ratio. So two formulas that are both very, very similar tell us two different stories based on what we're actually interested in. So depending on where our interest lies will help us choose which formula is going to be more appropriate for us to use to judge the value of this stock. Now it gets much more deeper into that. So if, if I'm tickling your interest with that, really recommend you take a look at these and you know, they're, they're close cousin, uh, Alpha's uh, or uh, Jensen's Alpha, I should say. Uh, that's another similar but different uh, formula that is going to tell you some interesting stuff about a uh, stock's, uh, you know, value and uh, its, its uh, you know, return compared to the market as a whole. Um, so hopefully that, uh, you know, clears it a little bit up and, you know, maybe sparks your interest a bit uh, so that you want to dig in and learn some more uh, about those types of formulas and how to use them to help you pick the best stocks for a portfolio. Now, the final uh, big misconception with investments is a super common one. I get this asked all the time. Students have a really difficult time understanding it. And by that, I mean just the concept itself. And that, of course, is duration. For whatever reason, students have a really hard time grasping it. I wonder if it's just because the way it's written doesn't translate well. Uh, or it's just kind of hard to grasp if you don't have some more hands-on experience with it. So I wanted to take this time to kind of lay it out for everyone uh, so that uh, you know you can get these duration questions super easily because once it clicks, man, this concept is, is super easy and is worth some real free points on the exam. Um, so if I had to explain duration in one single sentence, it is this, get your money. That's it. That is duration in a nutshell. Duration is the measure of how long it takes you to make your money back on an investment. You need to get your money, get paid, get your money back. So get your money back. Now, once you have that concept in your head with duration, all these other duration uh, questions become so much simpler. So if you think about it, you know, with a bond, which is what is duration is most commonly associated with, um, a very common question that you'll run into is if you want a lower duration, do you want to have a higher coupon or a lower coupon? And if you don't have that, you know, phrase in the back of your head of get your money, that could be a very difficult question to answer. But if you think about it from the perspective of how long does it take you to get paid back? Well, if I want a shorter duration, a shorter amount of time before I make my money back, I am going to want a higher coupon. Because think about it this way, if you loan someone $100 and you want to be paid back as quickly as possible, do you want that person to pay you back in increments of $5? Or do you want that person to pay you back in increments of $20? 
Obviously, I want them to pay me back in increments of $20 because I'm going to get my money back a whole lot faster that way than if they're just paying me $5 at a time. It's going to stretch those payments out a much further time frame. And that's exactly what duration is doing with bonds. The higher the coupon on the bond, the more money you get for each coupon payment, the shorter the amount of time it takes for you to get paid back. That is duration in a nutshell. Now, in the curriculum itself, in the review, we get into that in much more detail. You know, there's different different formulas you use to calculate duration. Um, there's all sorts of different ways that the questions can be asked as far as, you know, what you're calculating and, and where and, and what's important. So don't get me wrong. There's definitely a deeper aspect to all of this where these can get more complicated, but the 50,000 foot view is exactly that, you know, how long does it take you to get your money? And if you keep that in the back of your mind, anytime you come across a duration question, I promise you those questions are going to be so much easier to answer. And you're going to be thanking your lucky stars if you get them on the exam, because you'll be basically be able to chalk those up as free points. But those are some uh, really common uh, misconceptions that I constantly run into uh, with the investments uh, curriculum. Hopefully all of you, now that you've heard these uh, you know, trade secrets, you're not going to run into these misconceptions when you uh, sit for the exam and when you are studying in the review. So all of you have gotten a little bit of a leg up. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, content series that we're working on. We are going to finish it out. We are going to do uh, all of the major CFP exam topics. So stay tuned next week for our next episode in the series. Until then, I will see you all later. Mm -hmm.